This um, passage that we're looking at, if you've got your Bibles, you want to open up to Mark chapter 10. Samantha already read this for us. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and we've been following his ministry all through um, the book of Mark as, uh, as he's been ministering primarily around um, the Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee area. And uh, earlier on in this, in chapter 9, Jesus makes his transition where suddenly it talks about him now heading to Jerusalem through the Transjordan area. And uh, the, the focus of his ministry has changed. He's spending considerable more time with his disciples. Often we're going to see, as we see in this passage, where Jesus called the twelve together and spoke into their lives. He's, he's, he's really focusing the preparation for them for the next step of ministry, of what's going to be going on, the, the crucifixion that, uh, that is on their way. And, and so he's making that movement towards Jerusalem. And you can see in, in, in even those that are around him, the, the anticipation of what that is going to mean is rising. Those that were following him, the twelve and others that were that were with him, recognized they were there to see the tensions that have been created already between Jesus and the religious elite. Uh, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, those that 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 have heard his words. And found that, that, that their expectations of what the Messiah would do aren't matching with what Jesus is doing and saying. And so they are rejecting that because they aren't coming to where, uh, to the, because they aren't willing to listen and follow where Jesus is going. And they have their agenda, their biases, and they're holding fast to that. It's creating conflict between between them. And so everybody knew that that conflict was building. And now they were heading, as it were, into the lion's den, into Jerusalem, the hotbed of all the priests and all of the Pharisees, the, the center of the religious uh, culture there of Judaism. And it says here that, uh, that as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem with Jesus walking up ahead, they, the disciples, were amazed or astonished. And it says, and those who followed were afraid. They knew that there was something coming. They knew that there would be uh, some kind of a conflict. What we, what we would picture from the responses that they've had in the past is that their anticipation is that there will be uh, um, uh, a power encounter that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to set up His kingdom, to establish His throne there, to overthrow the Romans, to kick them out, and to, to set all things right, as, as the prophecies have said in all of the Old Testament. And so they're anticipating this, this, uh, uh, this powerful encounter, this, this uh, uh, conflict that's going to arise, and they are afraid, and, and, and they're amazed at Jesus at how determined he is walking ahead of them. He has, he's going with a purpose. 
Only the purpose that He has is very different from what they are expecting, what they are looking for. And so, here we see in verse uh, 32, Jesus taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him, saying, We are now going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and into the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. But after three days, He will arise. This is the third and the most detailed description that Jesus gives of what is going to occur um, in, in the coming days. Uh, we've, we've encountered these on a number of different occasions. We saw the first one in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, and you remember that that uh, occurred just as uh, Jesus had asked the question, who do people say that I am? And then asking specifically, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with that wonderful declaration of, of Jesus' uh, Messiahship. And he says, you are the Christ. And verse 31 says, and so Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then what happens? Peter says, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him. And then we have the second of these uh, declarations that happen in chapter 9, verse 30. And this is again, this is after uh, Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there was uh, the James, John, and, and Peter had an opportunity to see Jesus in His full glory and then they came down off the mountain and there was the encounter with the young man, with the boy, with a, a demon, and Jesus was able to heal him there. And then verse 30, from there they went, on, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. And this is what he was saying. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So you see that there, there is, a, in this third one, Jesus is more detailed. He's talking about that it's actually going to be happening in Jerusalem. Uh, again, he talks about being delivered or being betrayed into the, uh, to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will then condemn him to death. And then he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and they are the ones who will ultimately carry out the death sentence uh, that, the, that the Jews and, and the chief priests are asking for. But in all three circumstances, he emphasizes that there is going to be great suffering and there's going to be that, that the Son of Man will die. There's always the promise that he will rise again. Um, what's interesting is we look at each one of these circumstances 
And immediately after, the disciples reveal that their focus is off. In the first situation, Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, that's not the way it can be. You're the Messiah. You can't be talking this way. People are going to think that you're actually going to go through with this. No, it can't be that way. And Jesus rebukes him and, and, and calls out to him and says, get behind me, Satan. In the second situation, as soon as Jesus uh, gives the declaration of, of what is going to be happening, you remember then that they were going up the road and the disciples were talking uh, amongst themselves and Jesus asked them, what were you talking about? And they were talking about who would be the greatest. Again, their own arrogance in trying to, to hearing this message of Jesus and taking them to a place of thinking this grand kingdom and totally missing what he was saying and showing their own self-centeredness and arrogance of trying to see who would be the greatest. And then here in this third situation where Jesus gives this most detailed of declarations of what is going to be happening, immediately after, James and John come to Jesus and ask for the permission to sit at his left in his right hand in Jesus' kingdom. Again, their mind is not thinking a heavenly kingdom. They're still focused that this is going to be an earthly kingdom. They're totally missing the point. As I was looking at that, I, it made me think, Jesus was being pretty clear in what, what was going to be happening. As you look at these different examples, it wasn't that he was using vague or, or uncertain language. He was, he was giving detailed, or de detailed description of what was going to be happening. So it wasn't that, that, that Jesus was being unclear. It wasn't that he was not speaking into their lives. But they weren't listening. They, they were so wrapped up in, in their own ideas of things that would be going on that, that instead of hearing the word of Jesus that, that should have brought them to that place of, of humble recognition of what, what, was, coming, what was coming up in, in the near future for them and for Jesus. Instead of putting in that place of, of, of Lord, what do we do? How are we going to handle this? Their mind is going to these self-centered, arrogant places. They're missing the point of what Jesus says. Maybe you think of my own life. Those times in my life when I, when I feel like God is being silent. That, that, that things aren't, aren't being spoken to me. I don't think that that actually is the case. My understanding from what I read of the character of God He's not a silent God. I think there are, uh, that instead, He is generous in the ways that He communicates to His people. James tells us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. The Lord gives generously. We read about that in the Psalms, right? David says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Day by day they pour forth speech. There isn't any corner of the earth where His voice can't be heard. God is, God is speaking, and, and, and He's speaking clearly. 
It's not a, uh, a vague or, or, or a veiled kind of a message that he is communicating to us in our lives. He is speaking plainly to us. The issue when I get to that place where I'm not hearing God, it's not that, that he has changed, that he is no longer speaking or that he is being veiled, but I'm letting my own biases, my own agenda get in the way of hearing what it is that he wants to say to me. And I'm shutting my ears. And how often is it in that moment that I get drawn off into my own arrogant, self-centered plans? So James and John come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you we ask of you. Wow. <laughs> That's a little arrogant. <laughs> that, that no matter what, and, and to try and lock them in before you actually tell them what it is that you want. Um, Jesus didn't fall for it. He says, what do you want from me? And they're asking for these, this favored position. This is such an important passage. You know, I, Mark, there, there are such similar um, teachings that Jesus is giving in after both the, the second declaration and now here after the third declaration about what it means to be in leadership. You know, the first question of, Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus' teaching was, if you want to be the greatest, then you must be the least. That, that um, attitude of humility, of servanthood. And it's being repeated here in, in this third time uh, where Jesus says that, that, uh, that you know that, that the Gentiles... Uh, the, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. I don't know if the disciples heard it at the time, if they understood what Jesus was saying at the time. But you know that, that this message eventually got through. Because we look then at the, the epistles, the, the writings of, of, of Acts, of the establishment of the church uh, through the book of Acts. We look at all of the different writings, whether it's Paul's writings or, uh, or even into Peter and into John. This whole understanding of servanthood permeates every aspect of the life of a church. That we are not in the place of, uh, of, of looking for acclamation, for looking for, uh, for affirmation about who we are as people, but instead we are looking to be able to serve the needs of others. Um, this is such an important point in, in the life of the church. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your diakonos. And whoever would be first among you must be slave, dualos, of you all. Now I know that 
that I look at that and I think, well, okay, I don't need to be greatest, so then I don't have to worry about being a servant anymore. <laughs> I don't think that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. This, this is the attitude that we all should have. That, that in our interactions, not only amongst here in the church family, not only amongst our own families, but also in our community, in our interactions with the world, There is a, a dangerous pattern that's going on in, in our church as we are seeing our, our world, our, the, the, uh, the governments, the leaders of, of our countries and our nation, as, as they seem to be making more and more poor decisions where, where there are, are more and more of, of those rights and freedoms that we see that, that, that have been the established, been at the bedrock of, of the establishment of, of our nation, uh, Western culture, as we see more and more of those freedoms and, and rights being eroded, there is a dangerous trend where I see a lot of Christian people standing up and demanding their rights. And that's a tricky spot. Because that's not what I see here in Scripture. I, I don't see that, that we are called to demand our individual rights. Now, it's tricky because I think that, that a lot of that is focused at seeing not just, it's not just about my rights, it's seeing the rights of other people that are being eroded and seeing how people are being taken advantage of and people are being abused. And I think it's entirely appropriate for us to be able to stand up for those who, uh, for, for those who are being taken advantage of and being oppressed. But too often it comes across as arrogant self-centeredness. That that we are demanding religious freedom, that we're demanding the right to be able to, to talk about Jesus in schools. And I think that's entirely appropriate. Except, I also remember, not many years ago, where, we, where a lot of Christians adamantly stood up against Islam being presented in schools other religious points of view being presented in schools. Uh, and, and I didn't see people standing up against uh, those erosion of those rights and freedoms. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, that I want to be out there teaching Islam because I, it's, it's, it's a false religion. But if we are only going to stand up for the rights of Christians and not for all people to have their rights, then we are going to get ourselves into, um, into a place where we come off as very arrogant. This is not where I was going at all in my sermon, and I'm not sure exactly how I got here. <laughs> Um, what I did want to say 
and those other things we can talk about afterwards. But it is, it is important for us to recognize that, that we are to serve the needs of others. That we are to put our own self-interest and, and, and not, not be demanding our own way. You see that in the life of Jesus, right? When, when, there, when he comes into Jerusalem, and we will see this shortly, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and sees that in the temple, uh, that, that the temple court has been turned into this uh, place where people are taken advantage of, where, where the money changers are stealing from people, where they are uh, giving usury and all the rest of that, and turning the temple courts into a place that, uh, that, that was not intended. Jesus speaks out, acts out, decisively, um, with vigor against that evil and that oppression that is being used of. When Jesus is uh, interacting with, with the, the Pharisees and they are putting extra rules and regulations that are distracting people from their true relationship with, with God, he stands up boldly against those and has no problem confronting but when they attack him personally, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter where he does not open up his mouth. Jesus was not about demanding his own rights, his own protections, his own freedoms. He was concerned about those others that were being oppressed. But when it came to his own life, he gave it up willingly. we are called to have that very same attitude as Christ. That we wouldn't see our own selves as most important, but rather we would look to the needs of others and find ways that we can serve and, and, um, and be servant to those others who are in need, who are being oppressed, who are being taken advantage of. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. This is an important passage that we need to hold on to. In all of the other descriptions of how Jesus was going to die, and how and and the the raising up of his life again none of them other places talks about why he needed to die here jesus gives us teaching and understanding for us to know why it is that the son of man died it is to give a ransom for all of us you see we are all held captive in our sin. That sin that we have inherited from our fathers and our forefathers and our grandfathers and going all the way back to Adam and Eve. That sin nature that we have inherited that, that holds us captives, that keeps us in, in a place where we cannot follow God, where we cannot do what is right and good that we needed somebody to come and to 
sacrifice to pay that penalty. And Jesus is describing how His death will pay that penalty that will set us free. That will give His life as a ransom for many. Only He could pay that price. For any of us, a good man that would die for another would be able to to pay the price for one other person because we only have one life to give. But because Jesus is of infinite value as the, the, the almighty creator of all that is, He is of value that has no limits. And so His sacrifice, His death, is able to pay the penalty for the sin of the whole world. As John says in his first letter, uh, that Jesus' death not only paid the price for the sin of us who belong within the church, but it was sufficient and more than abundant to pay the price for the sin of the whole world. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because Just as infinite and limitless is His value, so is His limitless love for you. And so He sacrifices Himself in order to pay your penalty and ransom you and set you free from the captivity of sin. Jesus is speaking right now. His voice pours forth His love throughout all of creation. And He's reaching out to you right now to let you know that He loves you. And He's inviting you to receive for yourself that sacrifice, that gift of grace, that ransom to pay the penalty for your sin. Are you ready to to hear? To listen? To receive that for yourself? Don't waste another minute. Openly accept and receive that gift of freedom for yourself so that you can now live in the wholeness and the beauty of Jesus' love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son. Thank You for Your love that You poured through Him into our lives. Thank You for the way that He sacrificed Himself so that our sin would be paid for that we could be set free and we could receive through Him Your own righteousness to be clothed with, to stand before You pure and unblemished. Lord, we know that we are sinners. We have all experienced that uh, captivity to our sin. That even though we may know what the right thing is, we still continually go to our 
self-centeredness and respond in ways that are sinful and, and, and greedy and hurtful to others. So there's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. And so we look to you, the one who is uniquely able to set us free, who has already paid that price and now offers it to each one of us as a free gift that we can receive through faith. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that have never made that commitment, that have never received that gift of grace for themselves. I pray for Your Holy Spirit to be working in their lives right now, that they would hear Your voice, that they would understand that gift that is being offered to them. And they would with open hearts receive it for themselves. Lord, I thank You that You are speaking to us. That we can hear Your voice. And I pray that we would open up our ears to be able to hear what it is that You are saying and to follow in obedience to You. Lord, for those that have received Your grace, that have received that freedom, I pray, God, that they would, they would develop an attitude of, of attentiveness towards Your Spirit's voice. That we would all continue to walk our, through our lives with a recognition that, that we are unable to do this on our own. That we come with empty hands. And that You then offer to accomplish Your will and Your purpose in us. Lord, we need You every moment of every day. Develop in us that, that pattern, that, uh, that habit of, of seeking You, of relying on Your Spirit's strength and walking in Your might and in Your truth and in Your grace. We thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.